This is the University Seventh-day Adventist Church in the sunny Orlando, Florida. We are glad that you are listening to our weekly podcast. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and challenged by our message today. And may God lead you in the next step of your growth in Him. Here is our future sermon. Anybody here besides myself here for the first time? Raise your hand. All right, I didn't mean to embarrass you. I got a few here. Um, I'm glad to be here. I, I don't know if you folks that are new here, if, if you did like I did, I went, I went on, the, uh, on the church website. I wanted to find out what this church was all about. And plus, I needed to you know, get directions. And uh, I learned one thing. It's a, a, a very nice church. It's got an active ministry, and, and, and this is a very precise church. Because I wanted to see you know, what time church started. And it not only told me what time church started, it told me what time church stopped. <laughs> 1140. To 1240. So maybe you chose this church because you thought we're getting out of 1240. <laughs> I got news for you. This is also a grace-filled church. They're not legalists here. And it may say 1240, but uh, they will give uh, grace to go a little longer. We talk about what God has done for us this morning. Um, before we begin, I am the principal at Forest Lake Academy. I would love to give you just a short report about what's happening in, in uh, your school there. We have started off very strong this year. Praise the Lord. 400 kids, which is up uh, from recent years. And it's not just the number of kids. It's the quality of kids. It's what they're after, their attitude. If you come on our campus, you will, you will see a very happy, I believe, campus. And uh, the Lord has blessed. Our campus ministries department uh, brought in a speaker, John Boston, Pastor Boston from Ohio. And he uh, did a powerful week of prayer, second week of school, and uh, told the kids, I'm going to invite you. I'm going to give you the chance. I'm going to tell you up front. 47 kids got baptized at the end of that. That's more than 10% of our student body. Isn't that great? And in this day and age, with everything that's going on in the world, more than ever, we have to do like, we're instructed in the Bible, book of Timothy, be shade for the children. Because the children don't know. They learn from us. Shade for the children. I was a child once. I know looking at me, it's hard to tell, but I promise you. And when I was a kid, I had this dream that I was going to be an artist. And I was, I was just sure I was going to be the next Pablo Picasso. Or I would have been if I'd had any idea who Pablo Picasso was, you know, at six, five. But I love to draw things. I, I would spend hours drawing little cars and jets and people and houses and, and uh, just expressing myself artistically. And it was all very beautiful. It all looked exactly the same, but it was still all very beautiful. I'd say, Mommy, look. And she'd be, oh, son, that, that's a beautiful house. No, Mommy, that's you. But she honored my efforts, and I appreciated it, and, and I started to get, you know, you know how when you pump kids up, they start to get a little ego about them, you know, and you have to be careful not to spoil them. Guys, some of you are nodding. Maybe you were pumped up when you were a kid. I don't know. And uh, I remember one particular day, we ran out of paper for me. I couldn't find any paper to draw. I had, I had the urge. I had the bug to draw, and... and um, I had my, you know, my that big old box, best investment I ever had as a kid, that like 3,000 crayons in a box. You know what I'm talking about? It's like, and with those weird names, like burnt orange. What is that? Why would they burn it? You know, and, and, then, uh, and then they had um, midnight. No, that's just black, you know. Um, and, and 
And I guess it was done by women, because women see all those different colors. Men see like six. Blue, right? Yellow, orange. Women are like, no, that's taupe. You know, I got married. My wife had the bridesmaids dressed in purple dresses. And I keep telling her, they say, no, honey, they were lavender. Okay. But anyway, I had that box with all those different colors, and I was ready to go, but I had no paper. And I'm looking all through the drawers, you know, and under the couch and everywhere. I would do anything, the back of a check, you know, the back of a bulletin. I tore up a lot of bulletin and tithe envelopes when I was sitting in church, I'll tell you. I kept those companies in business single-handedly, and I couldn't find anything, not a thing. So I'm walking around through, and I've got, I've got to have some, I've got my crayons. What can, what? And I walked into the living room, and I thought, my word. Now there's a canvas worthy of my unique skills. And I set to work, and I was going to tell the whole story of mankind from start to finish. You know, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, all the way up through Joseph, all the way, all the way up to, you know, uh, David and, and Goliath and, and all the way up to, to Jesus and all of that. And I was going to tell the whole, and I just was busy telling the story. Filled up that whole wall as high as I could reach. I was, you know, I, I was, it was, uh, you know, maybe to here I could reach. But it was all along the living room and it was beautiful. And I wait till my mommy sees this. My mother walked in the room. She was stunned. She used all three of my names. And even threw in some names that she had been considering when I was born that she rejected. You know how moms do. David, what you, oh. First time I ever got spanked in rhythm. How many times have I told you? And those multisyllabic words, it got harder on me. Don't you ever, you know? I tell you what, just, I blame her today. I, I can't draw worth a lick today. It's, it's my mother's fault. She had to, she couldn't clean it. It was so much on there, she couldn't clean it. She had, we had to whitewash, you know, paint. Repaint the whole wall. Um, probably wasn't that talented an, an artist anyway. But I learned that where you write matters. And if it matters to a five or six-year-old kid, how much more does it matter where God writes? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. It's not just what God writes, but where he writes that makes all the difference. You know, God wrote in some pretty strange places. We're all familiar with probably the most famous place that God ever wrote. The Ten Commandments right there up, you know, up on the mountain. God had come down on the mountain, recited the Ten Commandments, and the people were like, yep, we got that, we can do that. Yeah, yeah, I don't want my neighbor's wife anyway. She's kind of not that good looking, you know, we can do that. Sabbath thing, you know, we do the man, we'll be all right, be all right. We can do that. All that the Lord has said, we will do. And God called Moses up on the mountain, and he was up there a long time, seven days. People got tired. Got scared. You know, he must have been an old man, and this is an old person thing, because uh, I'd go visiting on Sabbath with my grandparents, Sabbath afternoons. And, you know, after about two hours, I'd be ready to go. But he's still talking. And my grandfather would say something like this Well, guess we should be on our way. I'm like, Yeah. I get up, I go get in the car. Hour later, I'm sneaking back in the house, and they're sitting down, they're having another meal. You know, they didn't mean it. 
Like it must be what Moses was doing. But God finally came down. He wrote with his finger the Ten Commandments on stone. I want some Bible scholar in here to tell me this morning, why did God write on stone? Because he couldn't find any paper. Why did God write on stone? Permanence. This law matters. This is to govern your life and your children's lives. Excuse me a moment. Anybody ever had that walking pneumonia? I ain't careful. I'm going to have that falling down pneumonia. Permanence. Stone is a symbol of something that lasts. He said these Ten Commandments are for you and your children and your children's children. And later on, he would write those Ten Commandments into our hearts. So that from permanence, it moved to personal. But for now, it's permanence. This matters. Live by these commandments. Even when Moses came down from the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments and the children of Israel were dancing around the golden calf, they had already forgotten all that the Lord has said we will do, you know, until we get tired of doing it and then we won't do it anymore. And he drops, throws down the Ten Commandments in his anger and they break. The law's still there. Permanent reminder. And go back up and get another set. So God wrote the Ten Commandments. The transcript, Ellen White says, let me make sure this is okay in here. Ellen White, Spirit of Prophecy. Yes? The transcript, Ellen White says, the character of God on stone as a symbol of its promise. I want to flash forward, if you don't mind, a couple thousand years. There's another just, just heart-rending moment. When God, in the form of Jesus Christ, writes again. I mean, there's a lot that I'm skipping over. You know, the, the finger on the wall, God writes judgment. I mean, there's, you could do a study on this. And if you want something to do on a Sabbath afternoon, why not go do a Bible study on when God writes and where he writes? So I'm just hitting the high points. Jesus is preaching. You'll find the story in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 8, very beginning. Jesus had gone to the Mount of Olives, but he came back to the temple. Swarms of people, as soon as they heard that he was back in town, he was swarmed by the people. Let me ask you a question. This is not the point of the sermon, but I always want to throw this out here. Anytime I hear about swarms of people coming to Jesus, and I'm talking to myself as much as I am to you, when I, when I hear them talk about tax collectors and prostitutes and AIDS victims and homosexuals and flocking to Jesus, and I look around at our churches and our schools, and I'm looking for the swarms of people. It would do me good to make the life of Christ a deep, deep study, because he seemed to attract different people than I attract. Got to think about that. Maybe you want to think about that as well. But John tells us clearly, when he got back and word got out that he had gotten back, swarms of people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. Very relaxed. He wasn't, you know, one of those dynamic public speakers. He sat down and he taught them. And as he was teaching them, some of us, let's be clear where we are in the Bible story, somebody, some group of somebody's in this room, dragged some woman in front of him. Threw her on the ground. And let me explain something to you. You're going to be delicate because there are children in here. She was not fully presentable. Do you understand what I'm saying? They didn't care. And they said, Master. Good teacher. This woman was caught in the act of adultery. 
Just think about that for a moment. We just read over that. That means that somebody burst into this woman's room and dragged her on up out of bed. They didn't wait for her to put her clothes on. They didn't wait for her to get decent. She was probably set up, which is probably why they didn't drag the man. Things don't change a lot over time sometimes. Moses said, what? What did Moses say? Moses in the law gives orders to stone people like this. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so they could bring charges against him. When we will sacrifice people to make a point, we are in trouble. I was a member of a church in Michigan many, many years ago. Good church, good people. Didn't understand grace. I'm not going to say I was an expert in it either. We were struggling with an issue. A young woman had gotten pregnant. She had said that it was not her choice, that uh, there had been some coercion involved. Some members in the church thought that they needed a poor girl, unmarried, family, didn't have any money. <clears throat> some members of the church thought it would be a good idea to maybe throw a baby shower. Some other members in the church thought, how are you going to celebrate sin like that? Got to uphold the law. After all, it's written in stone. And I couldn't, I was teaching school. I was an adult at the time. And what I couldn't wrap my mind around was this. Let's say that she was lying about the coercion and it was a choice she made and she had gotten pregnant. She messed up. How long do we punish her for that? And what about the child? And we will say to such as these, don't have sex until you're married. Don't get pregnant. <clears throat> but if you get pregnant, don't have an abortion. you got to carry that baby, but don't look to us to help you. You're on your own. I'm going to put it to you. Is that what Jesus would do? <clears throat> anyway, they brought this woman to Jesus and said, she's been caught in adultery. We need to stone her. What do you want to do? And it's one of the most poignant, poignant pictures in all of the Bible. Jesus kneels down. And John gives us the detail beautifully. He doesn't respond, just kneels down. He takes that same finger that etched the laws of God into granite. And there in the sand, he starts writing. He doesn't say anything. Sister White tells us that the accusers were getting impatient because it looked like he was just ignoring them, playing them for a fool. These were respected people. They asked a question. You didn't just blow them off. You responded. He knelt down and he started writing. And Ellen White says they pressed closer, not to see what he was writing, but to press him for an answer. But as they started to press him for an answer and got closer, they could see what he was writing on the ground. And they saw the record of their own hidden sins written on the ground. And Jesus says, whichever one of you has no sin, you go first. Here's, I can picture him doing this. I'm adding to the Bible. Here's a stone. Have fun. The Bible says that uh, they saw what was being written. They melted away. The eldest first. That's the way it would have been. The eldest would have been pressing the case. They always had pride of place. The sinless ones among you go first. Throw the stone. And he started writing some more. And after, before I get there, I want to point something else out about this story that, that struck me for the first time when I was writing this sermon. You know, if you do me wrong, and you're clearly in the wrong, I'm going to let you know. You know what the brother did to me? 
I'm going to write at large. I'm going to file a lawsuit. I'm going to whisper it in people's ears. I'm going to shout it out. Look at this bum. We do it on Facebook all the time. I can't believe it. We put that dirty laundry out there. We do it to our leaders. We do it to Obama. We do it to Republican leaders. It doesn't matter. We're unhappy with you. We will list your sins out there. Our enemies. Sometimes we do it to our friends. But here's what I want to point out to you. These men were doing this. Why? They were wanting to charge Jesus to have a reason to crucify him, to kill him, to put him to death. And he refused to broadcast their sins to the world. He wrote their sins in sand. And you tell me what happens to sand when the wind blows. Oh, to God that we would be as willing to let the wind, the spirit of God, blow away our our church members and our friends and our enemies' sins against us, the way that God, Christ, was willing to let the wind blow that record of sins away. Because you know that that's emblematic of what God does for our sins. The Bible says, as far as the east is from the west, as deep as the deepest ocean, even God doesn't remember. And we keep a record for 30, 40, 50 years. All the wrongs that have been done to us. Does no one condemn you? All of the men had, had faded away. The woman's trying to cover herself. Does no one condemn you? And I imagine he got right down to where she was. He came up to her and he looked her in the eye. Is anyone left? Is anyone going to condemn you? How about you? How about you, brother? Is anybody here condemning you? She looks around and sees that everybody's gone. All those pointing fingers and all those wagging tongues have gone away. And she says, no one. And he says to her, neither do I condemn you. Now go and behave. And I imagine he said it just like that. Stop sinning. Now for those recalcitrant legalists among us, I'm going to give you an opportunity. Suppose that she had gone and gotten a mess again. Can you picture that same Jesus saying, I told you once. I gave you your chance. Guess you weren't really sorry. It's on now. I believe that there was another, neither do I forgive you. Go and sin no more. People say, but Brother David, you're just excusing sin. No. Condemning sin never stops sin. Not once, not ever. The only thing that has a hope of stopping sin is the grace that washes the sin away. Is that infallible? No. There will be a lot of people who turn their back on the grace of God and continue in their sin, but they would not have changed if all we had done is point fingers at them either. There's no chance with that. There's at least a chance if we offer and extend them grace. And the same God who wrote his laws in stone to symbolize forever and eternity wrote these sins of these enemies of his, not even his friends, in sand, to be blown away with the wind. There is a lesson there for us, isn't there? <clears throat> we have, all of us, built into our hearts, into our very fiber, an eternal desire to be loved. We go looking for that love, like the old country song from the 70s. Some of you may have heard it. Looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in too many faces. 
searching their eyes, looking for traces of what I'm dreaming of. In our scripture reading this morning in Isaiah, God addresses that eternal desire to be loved. I felt it when I was a kid. A lot of things happened when I was a kid. I was a little bit older than writing on the walls, but I was probably seven. I fell in love. Let me tell you how it happened. After school, I might have been eight, third grade. My mom was working, so we went to a little Adventist school, and then the bus would take us to the daycare where we would go until mom could pick us up, single mom. And uh, I remember, and we got there, shortly after we got there, it was snack time. And if you had a little bit of money, and occasionally I would have a little bit of money, I'd stolen out of mama's purse. That was in the sand. You feel me? You feel me? We all have a lot of stuff in the sand. Please don't ever forget that. Go in there and you could buy a Sprite, some of those butter cookies, you know, with the hole in the middle, look like a little flower, you know what I'm talking about? My grandmother used to get those, and another sin in the sand. I'd be going in there stealing those cookies, you know. <laughs> I'm not hungry for lunch. I don't know why. Anyway, I'd buy a few of those cookies, and whatever, three or four, whatever they give you, and then the, the Sprite snack. Oh, it was great. I saw a little girl there, beautiful little girl. Beautiful, beautiful. Jet black hair, raven black hair, like Snow White. She looked like Snow White. She didn't wear lipstick, I'm sure, but in my memory, she got lipstick all up on her lips, you know. You know, you know, an eyeliner. She didn't have any of that stuff on. She was like, you know, eight. But I thought she was gorgeous. And I offered her some of my Sprite. You know, I had drunk most of it. I wasn't real careful about, you know, what went back in there. So there were some swirly things in there. I offered it to her. She took it, drank it down. It was the start of a beautiful friendship. She let me kiss her on the cheek. I went home, told my mom, I got a girlfriend. I got a girlfriend. Next day, I couldn't wait. You know, I breezed through school. I hated school anyway, but now school was in the way of, you know, the love of my life. And I, I made sure I had some money. I bought another Sprite, brought some more of the cookies, and I, I let her have the first sip. I didn't get Sprite that day. She had it all. Next day, I went, and, and I couldn't find her. Oh, she didn't come today. Oh, it's too bad. I got my Sprite and my cookies and, and I went outside the playground and there she was sitting on a wall with another boy <laughs> drinking his Sprite and eating his cookies. I had been thrown over two days. I have been rejected. And, and I laugh. I mean, it's, it's cute. But it's, it was everything to that eight-year-old boy. I lived that. And I felt the pain of a love rejected, right? I'm going to laugh about it now. I mean, it's kind of funny now. But how funny is when you think that uh, that was um, 43 years, and I still remember that. Maybe partly due to my insecurities in elementary school. Many of you had them. I didn't think very highly of myself. I learned to be funny to the extent that I am funny because all the cool kids in the class were funny. I want to be like them. People would write notes. You know how kids would write cute little notes, you know, do you like me? Yes, no, check one. I figured that out real quick. And uh, do you like me? Yes, no. And I'll just go ahead and check the no for you. Eventually, do you like me? No. Just leave the yes off. We do that to ourselves. We become our own self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm not lovable. But your sense that you're not lovable does not change the fact that you need love. 
And you desire love, and so you go looking for love in all the wrong places. Sometimes that's in the arms of somebody. Sometimes it's in money. Sometimes it's in whatever it is. Pride of place and power, achievement. Somebody love me. Somebody know everything there is to know about me and love me anyway. Because we all live in fear that if you really could see behind the mask, you wouldn't want to have anything to do with me. I got news for you. You have yet. I don't know who the oldest person is in here. I don't know who the most wicked person is in here. But I know this. There's not a one of us that have ever once yet surprised God. Oh, I can't believe he did that. Those words God will never say. He knows what you're going to do. And he loves you anyway. Isaiah 49. You know, God is calling out to his people. Isaiah is quoting God, and this is what God says that Jerusalem, that, that Israel, that Zion is saying. The people of Zion said, I don't get it. God has left me, verse 14. God has left me. My master has forgotten I even exist. Maybe you felt that way sometime. Maybe you felt no one cares. Where is this God I hear so much about? If so, no, you're not the first person to feel that way. Zion said, I don't get it. God has left me. My master has forgotten all about me. Why bother? And then God responds, and this is God talking, and he says, and I love this. Can a mother forget the infant at her breast? I'm going to ask you, University Seventh-day Adventist Church, can a mother forget the infant at her breast? Be careful. This is what we call in the English department one of those fake rhetorical questions for Remember the story of the mother who drove her five children into the water to drown them because she wanted to stay with her boyfriend who didn't want to have anything to do with her kids? Now let me ask you again. Can a mother forget the child at her breast? We hate to even think about it. It's impossible almost for us to put words to it. The highest, most noble love we know in our human experience is the love of a mother for her child. There is no greater love that we know of humanly. But even that love fails. And that's why he goes on to say, yes, your highest ideal of love may let you down. But I won't forget you. Look, he says, I've written your name in the palms of my hands. Folks, he, he wrote his law on stone. It's a sign of permanence. He wrote our sins in sand. A sign of transience, if we will only let it be transient. Impermanence. Do you remember the prophecy that says, Behold, the day comes when the earth will burn as stubble. The elements will melt with fervent heat, and all that seemingly eternal stone is going to melt away. It's not the most permanent thing we know. Jesus Christ, long before we were ever created, had decided, because he had planned to create us, and he had decided on the plan of salvation long before we were created, what form he was going to take. And he's going to keep that form for eternity. And in that form, which will last longer than rocks and stones, our names are written in his hand. Isn't that powerful? You tell me what matters the most to God. His law? Our sins are us. 
He did not create us so that he would have somebody to keep the Sabbath. Got this beautiful law here and nobody to keep it. Mm, I know, I'll make some Sabbath keepers. He made us for a relationship. And then the law came along to show us the way to happiness, to please him. Near the end of World War II, the Allies were making great strides against Japan. You remember the island hopping that they had done? And they were working hard to retake the Philippines. You remember the Bataan Death March that came after the, the fall of the, the Philippines? MacArthur had left. Remember that grand promise, I will be back? And as they're getting closer and closer, the Japanese are becoming more and more worried and nervous, and they started disposing of their prisoner of war camps. And that's a euphemism for killing everybody in the camps so that nobody would, would be left alive to testify. And uh, the, the uh, high command became aware of a camp called Cabinachuan. 552 Allied soldiers were imprisoned there. And they were becoming fearful that the Japanese were making plans to exterminate them as they retreated from the Philippines. And so a daring plan was concocted between uh, American forces and Philippine guerrillas to go in under the cover of darkness and try to rescue those 552 Allied prisoners. It was a beautifully designed raid. They, they hiked miles and miles and miles, 30 plus miles into the Philippine interior. They came to the camp, which was heavily guarded. There was a, a regiment of Japanese soldiers just down the road that could come rushing to their aid if they got wind of what was going on. So it had to be meticulously timed, the blowing up of bridges and all of these things. And, and they crept up on the camp and they surrounded it and at a given signal they attacked. And by any account, the raid was a glowing success. There were a couple of casualties on the side of the Allies, but not nearly as many as on the side of the enemy. They were able to go in and lead the torn and the tattered and the beaten and the bruised, the emaciated, starving prisoners out for the long 30-mile hike back to safety behind the lines. Some of the rangers parted with their shoes so that the prisoners would have shoes to walk in. Other rangers carried prisoners who couldn't walk. There were ox carts to carry them. It was an arduous journey. They did a head count after they had gotten out, and they discovered that there was a prisoner missing, unaccounted for. It turned out there was an Englishman who, over the course of his imprisonment, had become so sick with dysentery and, and uh, lack of nutrition, disease. He had lost most of his eyesight and most of his hearing. And he had been asleep when the attack started. And somehow, in all of the hubbub and the smoke and the noise and the darkness, the rescuers missed him. He got up because, you know, when you get to a certain age, you might be deaf and you might be blind, but you still have to go to the bathroom. And he got up and he started tripping over things on his way to the bathroom. And he could sense that there was, that something was wrong, but he had any idea. And he, he went into the latrine took care of his business. He was sitting in there, rolling himself a smoke. Had no idea that all of his friends and comrades had been liberated. Fortunately, there was an allied soldier who was doing a last minute sweep of the camp and he stumbled on him. He said, we came to get you out. And the bewildered Englishman didn't know what to do. He just threw up his hands. The rescuer grabbed him and hustled him as fast as he could. And they went and they caught up with the rest of the 
prisoners and those that had freed them. He was not forgotten. Those 552 prisoners felt like they were forgotten all those many years that they were in that prison. They were not forgotten. You and I are in some ways prisoners of war on this outpost that's been under siege for a long, long time. Some of you have had hard, hard lives, financially, physically, family, emotionally. Some of you have struggled even to make it into church this morning. And you're tempted to think, I am all alone. My master has left me. Some of you can't seem to get your act together when it comes to obeying God. And God's going to give up on me and he doesn't love me anymore. This morning I'm here to remind you. God wrote his laws in stone. But he wrote our sins in sand. And the greatest news of all, as a reminder to us that we are not forgotten. We are not left destitute. We are not alone. He wrote our names in the most permanent place could possibly write them. See, he says, I have engraved you in the palm 